moments to quiet our hearts, and I pray that you would help us to do that, that we might hear your voice, that you would strip away anything that is not you, that is not your truth, and that we might know what it is that you are asking of us, Father. Make it very clear. Speak your word directly to our hearts. We pray that we might see Christ this morning. In his name that we pray, amen. Well, I know that a lot of you out there are parents or grandparents, and maybe some of you that aren't yet, maybe someday in the future, and I will just tell you, and, and those of you that already are parents and grandparents, maybe you can agree to disagree, agree or disagree with me as I say it, but if you're a good parent, you're always thinking about things that you want to characterize your children. You want people to come up to you after they've interacted with your, with your children and say good things about them. You want your children to be kind. You want them to be polite. You want them to be wise to their age, maturity level. You Hopefully, if you're a Christ follower, you want them to be godly. You want them to make good decisions. You want those things for your children. And as you raise them, you try to teach them and encourage them in that way. And for me, as I look at that list, as I think about that list as a father, one of the things I would add to that list is I want my child to be grateful. I want them to be thankful for what they have, for what they're given, for gifts and those kinds of things. One of my pet peeves is seeing a child who is always complaining. You know what I mean? They have something, but they're not happy with it. They want something else. They want something more. They want what their friends have. Uh, we want our children to be grateful. I want my child to be grateful. Because you know what grateful children turn into? I believe that grateful children turn into generous adults. They're thankful for what they have, and they're willing to share it with other people. But how do we foster gratitude? How, how do we encourage thankfulness? How do we encourage it in our children? How do we encourage it in our own lives? How do we develop a sense of gratitude? We do it by focusing on what we have, not what we lack. Now, I know this to be the case because I experience this in my own life. I have to take a little straw poll here, and I want you to be perfectly honest, okay? Nobody's looking at you, and nobody will judge you. How many people have an Amazon account? Okay? All right, the other half of you, shame on you. We all, 99% of the stuff that comes into our house comes from Amazon. We, you know, barely go anywhere anymore. It's all delivered to our doorstep. If you have an Amazon account... I'm going to let you in on a little secret. I think probably most of you know it, but if you don't, here it is. If you click on the drop-down menu where you log into your Amazon account, there's a little thing that you can click on. It's called a wish list. Yeah, some of you have already seen that. You already know where that is. Now, the wish list is really handy because what happens is when you're looking for things 
and you're searching and you find it, you can click and put it on your wish list so you can find it later. You see, Amazon, the website, is like Amazon the River. It's massive and you can lose track of where you are and where stuff is. And so they give you this little, wi- this little wish list. You can put it there, you can find it later, you can pop it in your cart, and then you can buy it. But the marketing geniuses at Amazon curse them. They do this thing where anytime you search for something, they pop up other things. Well, since you looked for this, you might be interested in this. Yes, you know I'm interested in that because I'm looking at this kind of stuff and it's constantly feeding you all these things that you want and and you think that you might need. And I was looking through there the other day and I have... I like to shoot, a lot of you guys know that, a lot of you folks know that, I like to shoot handguns and I have some and I have range bags and pistol cases, but I found this beautiful pistol case that holds five pistols and all the mags and the ammo and it can be had for $99.99. Now I don't have $100 to spend on a pistol case, but in case sometime I do, I put it in my wish list. And then Tim was talking to me the other day. This one is Tim's fault. He said that there was a vacuum cleaner that fits our Makita batteries for our tool sets. And so I went looking for that. And guess where that is? On my wish list. And I have Apple TV to stream my Netflix, you know, because I cut the cord and all that stuff. And I have Apple TV and I love it. And I got looking the other day and guess what? Apple TV 4K. It's on my wish list. But you know what I do? I go and I look at that wish list and then guess what I'm thinking? Oh, I need that. I want that. The one that I have is not good enough. I don't want to sweep anymore. I want a vacuum. I don't want to just Apple TV. I want a 4K. We foster gratitude by being grateful for what we have, by, by focusing on what we have, not what we don't have. And I wonder just sometimes how thankful we are. Some of you may know this, but do you know that just by being in America, we are some of the most wealthy people in the world? We're wealthier than the vast majority of the world. Even those of us who have feel like that we don't have very much, you're still wealthier than most of the world. Did you realize that if you make $32,000 a year, you are in the top 1% of earners in the entire world. Over two-thirds of the world's population survives on less than $2 a day. How thankful are we spiritually? Do we not sometimes lash out at God for not doing the things that we think that He should? But in Lamentations chapter 3 and verse 23, Jeremiah tells us that God's mercies are new every morning. Every morning that you have gotten out of bed, God has extended His mercy to you. How many times has God mercied you? If you're 10 years old, He's mercied you 3,650 times. If you're 21 years old, he's mercied you at least 7,665 times. If you're 50 years old, he's mercied you over 18,000 times. If you're 75, over 27,000 times. Every morning, God extends his mercy to you. How thankful are we? 
As we make our way through the book of 1 Timothy, we're talking about life in the church. A little bit later on, as we continue to make our way through, we're going to come to a verse where Paul says, I'm writing these things so that you would know how to behave in the church. How do we live life in the church? How do we do God's work in God's way? How many of you have ever tried to do God's work in your way? Yeah, we all try to do that. Well, we know this is what God wants, so this is what we're going to do, and we try to do it in our own way. What should we be doing in the church? That's what we're asking ourselves as we walk through these chapters. Paul starts off with some really important things. Last week, if you were here, Tim talked to us about watching out for people who are twisting the truth, watching out for false teachers. We need to protect the truth. We need to stand for the truth. And this morning, we're going to see that Paul encourages us to give thanks for Christ and what he has done. Now, we might understand why protecting the truth and standing for the truth is high on Paul's list. Yeah, obviously, we get that. We need the truth. Without the truth, we don't have salvation. We understand that. But why is giving thanks so high on the list? Aren't there other things that are more important for us as a church than just giving thanks, than just being thankful? Well, as you see, often giving thanks is an afterthought for us. Why is it so important for us as Christ followers to give thanks for Christ? I want to suggest to you this morning that our thankfulness motivates our service. Our thankfulness motivates our service. Gratitude prompts action. When we're thankful for what we have, it encourages us to serve, to move out. Because when we're ungrateful, we're self-focused. We don't see the needs of people that are around us. And so Paul's going to challenge us to be thankful, to be grateful. Let's see what Paul has to say. I hope you understand that when we read the Bible like this, and we say that Paul wrote the book of 1 Timothy to his protege, who was pastoring the church in Ephesus, like Tim told us last week, then we read these words that Paul wrote, we're reading... What God has to say, because God gave Paul the words. Anytime we read the scripture, these are the very words of God. And so what does God have to say to us? 1 Timothy 1.12, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though I formerly was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example of to those who were to believe in him for eternal life, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. I want us to just notice a few things in these verses. First of all, I want you to notice that Jesus Christ is referred to eight times in these six verses. Eight times. And we look at Jesus Christ and what Paul has to say here, I want you to see that Christ is active in all of these things. 
If you've been here very much at Mossbrook and you've heard me speak, you know that I am strangely intrigued by grammar. And I'm always talking to you about little things that we notice here or there. And this is something very important. Every time Paul refers to Jesus Christ, he does so in the active voice, in the active tense. He says, Christ gave me strength. Christ judged me faithful. Christ appointed me to service. Christ came to save sinners. Christ displayed his perfect patience. Christ is working. He's acting, and he's doing it for us. Now, what did Paul do? Paul received mercy. That's it. He received mercy. He didn't do anything to deserve what Christ did for him. That's all. Now, how about you? How many of you have at some point in your life felt like the way that you lived or the things that you did or didn't do somehow endeared you to God? Anybody? No, not one person. Now, one person has ever done anything or not done something and said, there, that'll make God love me. Come on, we all do that. That's our natural tendency, right? How do we endear ourselves to people? We do what, we want them, what they want us to do. Or we don't do what they don't want us to do. And we take that tack with God. If I live this way, God will be happy with me. If I don't do these things, He will be pleased. Those are bad things, I won't do them. These are good things, I will do them. Paul says, when I received mercy, it was only because Christ acted toward me, not because I acted toward him. We take no steps toward Christ by the way that we live. He takes all the steps toward us. He is the active one. We are the passive one. We are the one that receives. You see how Paul describes himself? Melody referred to it there before we sang that last song. He said, I'm a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. That simply means I'm a hurtful person. I'm somebody who, who likes to do damage or has done damage. Paul hurt. He imprisoned. He arrested. He killed Christians. That's what he did. And because of that, Paul says, I am the worst sinner ever. No one is as bad as me. I'm as bad as it gets. I'm terrible. Now, Paul was not being dramatic here. He literally was a terrible person. He literally was a terrible sinner. I want you to just draw your attention to a couple of things here. First of all, I want you to understand this, that if, Paul can change, if God can change Paul's heart, he can change yours. If he can take a guy who imprisons and kills Christians and change his heart and press him into service and use him to build the kingdom of God, then he can change your heart too. No one is beyond the reach of his grace. Notice in verse 14 that Paul says God did it to display his perfect patience. When you have a bad day, a bad week, a bad month, a bad year, a bad life, and you're on the bottom, 
and you're looking up, you can have a tendency to say, well, God can't help me. Yes, he can. He changed Paul's heart and life as a display of his perfect patience to help you to understand that God can change anyone's heart. How many people know the guy's name who wrote the song Amazing Grace? Not the Amazing Grace we sang here today, but the original, the old school Amazing Grace. His name was John Newton. He was a pastor and a songwriter in England. Did you know that before he was a pastor and a songwriter, that he was a captain of a slave ship? Then when he was 16 years old, he started working on these ships, sailing from England down to Africa to buy slaves in the slave market and then bring them back to England to sell people into slavery. That's what John Newton did for a living. He was so good at it. He was so talented. He was so exceptional at what he did. He worked his way up from swabbing the decks to being the captain of his own slave ship. And that's how he made his money. Until one day God captured his heart and showed him mercy and grace and saved him and changed his soul. One of the most well-known evangelists of the 20th century here in the United States was a man named Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday traveled all over the country sharing the truth of the gospel in venues small and great and was instrumental in leading thousands of people to Jesus Christ. Billy Sunday, before he came to Christ, was a foul, vile, profane, alcohol-swilling second baseman for the Chicago White Sox in the 20s. And he was drunkenly stumbling down the street in Chicago one day when a man stopped him and shared the gospel with him, and God saved him and changed his life. He used him for his glory for many years. You see, God does those things to display to us His his perfect patience. If God can change Paul's heart, He can change yours. But secondly, I want you to notice that Paul did not say, I was the worst sinner. He says, I am the worst sinner. Paul realized that, that he needed God's grace and mercy every day just as we should. We need grace every day, and God gives grace and mercy every day. Paul says, God's grace overflowed for me. The word overflowed there simply means I can't measure it. I can't count it. I can't quantify it. It's too much for me to understand, but God gives me grace every day. Folks, I want you to understand that God is not stingy with his grace and mercy. We don't just need God's grace in our lives one time. One time so that we might be saved, so that we can come to Christ, so that we can be a part of the family. We need it every day. And God is very generous with it. In Ephesians 1, Paul says that God lavishes his grace on us. What does Paul tell Timothy our response should be? Look at verse 17. Let me read it for you again. He says, To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. What should we be doing in the church? 
We should be being thankful. We should be thanking God for what Christ has done for us. He is the king. He is over all. Often we picture Jesus Christ, we picture him on the cross. Certainly he did go to the cross for us to provide our salvation. When we picture Christ now, we should not picture him on the cross. He's not on the cross anymore. He's on the throne of the world. He's the king. How many people have ever watched uh, Family Feud? I know that's kind of a little bit of a shift there. Family Feud's been around for probably 40, 45 years now and all kinds of different permutations and hosts and all those things. But if you're familiar at all with Family Feud, the, the thing is they go out on the street or they make phone calls probably or whatever they do. But they ask 100 people. 100 people surveyed the top five answers on the board. Here's the question, right? And then the contestants try to guess the most popular answers. Well, a few years ago... They asked this question to 100 people. They said, if someone refers to the king, who do you think of? Beep, you know, hit the thing. 81 people said Elvis. Seven people said Jesus. Three people said Burger King. We don't think about Jesus as the king, but that's who he is. Have you ever seen a bumper sticker on the back of someone's car that says, Jesus is my king? I haven't. I've seen a lot of Jesus is my co-pilot. That's a bad look. Jesus is my co-pilot? What does that mean? That means I am running this show. And when things get difficult, I'll let him take over. Right? Isn't that what Carrie Underwood said a few years ago? Jesus, take the wheel. <laughs> I shouldn't have the wheel at all. Jesus is the king. He's not my co-pilot. He's not my companion. He's not my buddy. He's not somebody I can call on if I get in trouble only. He's the king. He should be over all. So why do we give thanks? Why do we give honor? Why do we acknowledge the king? Well, Paul gives Timothy and us a challenge in verses 18 and just the first few words of verse 19. He says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, here it is, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. So Paul charges Timothy, he commands him, he instructs him, he gives him authority and says, go, and I want you to notice the operative phrase here, this is the challenge, and it's the challenge to us, he says, I want you to wage the good warfare. The war that we are in is the battle for truth. This ties back into what Tim was sharing with us last week. It's the battle for truth. It's the battle for the truth of Scripture, for the deity of Christ, for salvation alone coming through Christ. Without the truth, there is no salvation, and Satan knows that, so he wages war on the truth. We've spoken to you many times about the fact that God, that, that Satan rather whispers lies into our ears. 
tries to get us to turn away from the truth. If you're a student of history at all, you may know that the first major battle of the Civil War took place in July of 1861. It's called the Battle of Bull Run, or the Battle of Manassas, depending on which side you were on. Things have been kind of percolating here in the United States for a few months since April of 1861 when shots were fired on Fort Sumter down in South Carolina. And things were kind of brewing. There were tensions. Everybody knew that something was probably going to happen. What you may not realize is that the Union Army, the North, really did not take the Southern threat very seriously. Oh, the ragtag bunch of rebels down there. We'll just go down and we'll squash them and it will be over. And on July 8th of 1861, the, the troops were gathering and it looked like something was going to happen and, and the northern army was there to engage the threat and they were prepared to, to stomp out the rebellion and just kind of put an end to all of the hostilities and all of the tension. This is no big deal. And interestingly, if you read history, you'll find that quite a number of people from Washington, D.C. traveled to Manassas, it wasn't that far by carriage, traveled, and the reason why they went down, do you know what it was? They wanted to see the spectacle. And they wanted to be there when the rebellion was quashed. They, they were ready to have a party. They were the socialites. They were the, the elite of Washington, D.C., and they wanted to be there for the festivities. What happened instead when they arrived is that they saw a battlefield that was full of dead bodies and body parts and men laying wounded and dying and groaning in pain. 3,000 Union soldiers were killed. And a few people started to realize this might be more serious than we thought. The Union Army wasn't ready to fight. Folks, listen. This is not a party. This is a war. This is a war that we are in. A battle for the truth. And we're all surprised when bad stuff happens. We read stuff in the news, the horrors that are taking place, the terrible things that are happening, not just in this country, but in other parts of the world. We see people abused and mistreated. We see the name of Christ being torn down, we see all the moral fiber of this country going into the toilet, and we're shocked, we're shocked at the opposition. But we shouldn't be. We need to be ready to fight, because this is a war, it's not a party. Paul gives a warning in verse 20, he says, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, who have, I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. There's a consequence for not holding on to the truth. We don't know exactly who these two guys were, but apparently they were some that were involved with the church at Ephesus at some point, and they did not hang on to the truth. They did not stand for the truth. And they were literally, Paul is saying, causing ruin, causing harm to the faith in the name of Christ. 
We are challenged to cling to the truth and to not take it lightly. Friends, your thankfulness will motivate your service. Or your lack of thankfulness will hinder it. This is tough. This is a war. It's not nice out there. It's possible that there are people out there, if you take seriously standing for the truth, if you take seriously telling people what God has done for you and what God has done for us, and what He wants to do in your life and that He calls us to live our lives in a different way, if you're serious about doing that, there may well be people out there that hate your guts. They might not like that. They may not want to hear that. But how can we not serve God? How can we not share the truth? How can we not love people? How can we not stand up for what is right when we think about what God has done for us? You see, that's why giving thanks is so important. That's why it's on the, almost the top of Paul's list of things to talk to us about in regard to life in the church. Don't you want that for other people? Other people whose lives are screwed up? Other people who are at the end of their rope, like maybe you were not too long ago? Don't you want them to have that kind of hope? That's why we have to be grateful for what Christ has done for us, because it motivates our service. This is life in the church. This is doing God's work in God's way. It's giving thanks for Christ and His grace. It's about clinging to the truth and giving it away. How do we do that? I can't do that. We talk about this often too, don't we? I don't know what to say. I can't do it. Well, Christ Himself is the one who gives us what we need. He alone. Nothing else can satisfy us. Nothing else can sustain us. That's why we sing songs like Christ is enough for me. I have to be honest with you that sometimes when I sing that song, it rolls off my tongue very easily. Christ is enough for me. Is he? Am I paying too much attention to my Amazon wish list? Paying too much attention to what's not happening in my life that I want to be happening? Or am I grateful for what Christ has done? If you are, you will give it away to other people. And that is doing God's work in God's way. you decide to be grateful for everything that Christ has done for you, will you fight for truth? Will you be awake to the fact that this is a war and not a party? This is serious. We have to stand for the truth. We have to give thanks for what Christ has done for us because that will motivate us to care for other people, to reach out to other people, 
And if you're going to do that, then you have to do it with this determination. No matter what happens, no turning back. Because I guarantee you, if you take this seriously and you make that decision, now I want to be a part of this, I want to do that, I know I need to because of what Christ has done for me, there'll be days when you want to turn back. There'll be days when you want to do something else. You want an easier road. You want to blend in with everybody else. You don't want to stick out. You don't want to be different. You don't want to do the hard things. You have to determine, this is what I'm doing, no matter what, no turning back. And by the way, folks, that's why what we do here is so important. That's why what we do in small groups is so important. Because when you're ready to turn back, you need a brother or sister who can look you in the eye and say, you're not turning back. We're doing this. Because of what Christ has done for us. We're going to keep going. We're going to keep going until that day when we see him face to face. Father, this is your church. You are doing the work. You alone are the one who has the ability to change hearts and lives. Thank you for your grace, which has been lavished on us. Forgive us for taking it for granted and not reaching those that are around us. There are days we don't want to do that. There are days when we we want to just focus on ourselves. We want to do what we need to do, what we want to do. I pray that we will be motivated by our gratitude to serve, to care for others, to love the people in this community who need to know your love. And we pray that your truth would go forward. Help us to stand for it. Help us to be good testimonies of what it means to honor you and to live in a way that is pleasing to you and is in line with your word. And Father, we pray that you will build your church. Let nothing stand against it. In all these things, we honor Christ today. We know that he is the king. In his name we pray, amen.